You are listening to the Hostage to the Devil podcast. Some listeners may find this content disturbing. Tony, Dan, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was, to, oh, be fair, to be fair, it was one of those ideas that I came up with about six months ago with Chris, and I'm sort of slowly regretting it because there's a lot of work involved. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, I thought I could just chat to people and put on the podcast, but no, I've got a, there's a lot of editing involved, and especially with me because I'm crap at talking. So, uh, so really, I mean, to be fair, the podcast was, was, was started because I had a lot of un, un, untold stories and a lot of, a lot of stuff that I wanted to get off my chest whilst making the first film. So I met you guys once two years ago now, I think, whilst in development for the second film. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a joy to have both of you on the podcast. So for, pleasure. Those, for those of you who, for the audience that obviously are selective audience or know exactly who you are, but for an audience that are just tuning in and don't really know who you are and what your background is, can you both of you give us a quick sort of bio, please? Sure. Go ahead, Dan. You go first. I'll go after you. All right. Uh, my name is uh, Dan Rivera. I'm a senior lead investigator for uh, NESPR, New England Society for Psychic Research. Um, I go out into the investigations. I uh, I do the interviews with the clients. Um, I you know suggest uh, spiritual help from the church to the clients as well. If it involves an exorcism, it has to be approved by the bishop as well. And then, uh, you know, we go to the church and, um, you know, we take care of business. You know, we, we have the exorcisms performed. Right. Yeah, I'm Tony Spera. I'm the director of the New England Society for Psychic Research here in Connecticut in the United States. And it was founded back in 1952 by uh, Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren, famous psychic researchers, and been involved in the paranormal realm of research and investigating all types of supernatural events since the mid-1980s. And of course, my team includes Dan, which you just met, and uh, oh, about half, almost a dozen, actually, other folks that are close in the society. And we do just what Dan said. We go out, investigate haunted homes, haunted structures, haunted people, people who've been uh, tormented by evil, by demonic entities, and we try to seek help. You know, it's people see these movies and they wonder if this is real or not. It's very real. Uh, this is nothing to play with. It's not a joke. It's not a farce. It's real. So we carry on the legacy of the New England Society for Psychic Research that Ed Lorraine founded, you know, back in 52. We want to keep it going because people never stop needing help. So we have to be there uh, to try to help them. Brilliant. Great stuff. I just want to just mention to Dan, the reason why I'm dressed like this is because my boiler in my apartment decided to take its own life. So even, even, uh, even, even my boiler's sick with 2020. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. my boiler, my boiler's just, uh, yeah, decided uh, during an Irish winter. Um, but yeah, let's get, <laughs> let's get, let's get stuck in then. So obviously Father Maliki Martin is, you know, I spent six years researching the man and making the film, the first film documentary. Can you, do you have any, you know, let's, let's keep Lorraine and Ed Warren to the side for this for this moment, but Father Martin. Then, can you remember when he first came on your radar? Was it was it a book that you read? Was it was it the Coast to Coast radio shows? So Tony, you go first. You know, yeah. How did Father yeah. Martin come on your radar? Yeah, Father Martin uh, actually is very famous, and 
uh, has been famous for a long time. And the first time I heard about him was probably back in the uh, mid 80s to early 90s. And uh, I remember people speaking about a book that he wrote called Hostage to the Devil also, among many, many others. And I came to learn that he was an Irish priest born in uh, Ireland and had siblings that also became priests. But he was a Jesuit priest, but then uh, kind of broke away from the uh, Vatican II in 1962. And he has a very storied past, a very uh, uh, precise man. He really knew his stuff when it came to exorcisms, when it came to evil and demonic possession also. So he was almost like the benchmark for us and our society for how to deal with people who are possessed by demonic entities. He was the go-to guy. What are you done? When, when did you first sort no, um, You know, just from reading his uh, books and everything like that, I've learned a lot from him and how we approach our cases and how we help our clients. Um, it, takes a, it takes a toll on us doing these. I mean, in the past three years, I think um, it's now it's up to eight exorcisms now that we've been involved in with the church. Um, and there's a lot that goes into it. And I think there's a lot that people don't understand what's involved. Um, it's not like the movies. I want to tell you that, um, you know, these are real people with real problems. And, um, you know, it's not solved or it's not, it's not a cure that happens overnight. It could take many years. You know, sometimes, you know, there isn't, you know, that, that final um, stage of help, you know, and because, um, you know, it takes a lot. We could guide them to, to the church and, you know, for them to seek the help, but then it's up to them to continue that work. And, and if they fall back, the demonic takes control of their life again, and it could go on for many years. And um, it's, it's taking accountability for your actions in your life and to want your life back. And it's a battle. It's a battle every day that they have to fight. Um, and it, it's a tough battle. And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. Being the, being the, the, son, the son in law of Ed and Lorraine Warren, Tony, you, you obviously saw a lot of, you, you saw a lot of Ed and Lorraine behind the scenes and saw them day to day. They were both very much similar to Father Martin. They were very, very, sort of they were questioned a lot they were criticized a lot i know father martin had his own approach to criticism and to negative comments and feedback how did how did lorraine and ed warren take take that sort of slander and and, and criticalness i mean how, how did how did how did they both deal with that kind of you know as, as father martin would say mudslinging yeah, uh, well, Ed and Lorraine both, you know, weren't happy to read articles or to get contradicted or to have skeptics approach them or to uh, uh, heckle them in audiences and things. But Ed used to tell me, he says, I don't care what they think. He says, I don't care if these people believe me or not. He says, I know the truth. He used to tell me that all the time. He says, I grew up in a haunted home. I know what it's like to be tormented by uh, entities. And I know these people need help. He goes, so... I don't listen to the naysayers. He used to say that to me all the time. I don't listen to the naysayers. I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. There's always going to be 
skeptics, and this is my opinion too, there's always going to be the ones who say, well, I never saw that happen. I never saw a person possessed. That doesn't mean that doesn't happen. Of course, it's not like, you know, every one out of 10 people walking down the street is possessed. Of course not. But it does happen. And Ed knew it because he grew up in a haunted home and he dealt with thousands of people that came to him for help. And, you know, when, when they were really young, uh, Lorraine had said to Ed when they were like in the teens, when he met her, she said, Ed, you know, you guys are all reading the same books. There are no such thing as ghosts and demons. That's what Lorraine, who was Irish, Irish descent, uh, thought. And she was Catholic. And that's what she thought because she never encountered it. She just used to go to church. But, you know, she didn't get a lot of uh, people talking about devils and demons. And Ed looked at her and he said, Lorraine, you don't believe it because you never lived in a haunted house like I did from age eight until 12. He says, I know exactly what's going on with these people. He said, you would have never said that to me if, if you lived in a haunted home. And as they progressed and got older, <clears throat> it was really cemented in Lorraine's mind that this stuff was in fact a reality because she saw it. She saw the evil that was involved. And what Ed used to always say to me, like, he says, I don't care what people say. I, they can slander me. They can call me a jerk. They can call me a hoax. He goes, I don't care as long as I get the word out that evil is real and, and the devil exists and you have to call on God for help. Wow. I just, I, I just saw something go past your screen, by the way. Did you see that, Dan? I saw it. I saw yeah, it yeah. right by, it could have been, by his shoulder to his head. Yeah, could have yeah, been yeah, a tail yeah. of my cat. Could have been my cat's tail. <laughs> no, 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 it was, almost like, a, it was like a mist. It was a mist, it yeah. Was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It went straight Seriously? past the face. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, right. I've had that. Ha I've had that happen when, uh, whenever I talk about Ed and Lorraine. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, it's beautiful. Sometimes yeah. there's a little, little something that happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we try to like just, just like a normal person, you try to dismiss it as something else. Like I just said, it's my cat's tail, but I didn't <laughs> see it. I didn't see it, but it was a mist, huh? A yeah, mist, yeah, yeah. Just, just, just creeped across your face. Yeah, uh, and out of shot. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get any. I mean, I got. I didn't get freaked out by it. I just thought it was quite interesting it, in the timing of the, what you were talking about as well. Well, when you play it back, you'll probably see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I put a little yellow. Is it a yellow circle in your in your industry? <laughs> put a yellow circle around yeah. it. Uh, yeah. So, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Then, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot, a lot to other interviewers, but. Could you summarize them both as personalities? You know, were they chalk and cheese or were they, were they you know, did it just work as, as a couple? Can you just, to an audience that isn't familiar with, with the Warrens, can you summarize them individually for me and, and as, a, as, a, as a group, as, as, as a oh, as a Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, very easily. Lorraine was probably the most genuine, uh, compassionate person that I've ever met in my whole life. Uh, there, is, there isn't a better person out there than, than Lorraine and her, her heart. Uh, when she used to talk to people like at, at uh, presentations and lectures, people would come up to her and she'd be very tired. You know, at the end of the night, sometimes she'd be up on her feet all day long, lecturing late at night at some college far away. And at the end, we'd have a question and answer period. She'd always take the time to speak to these people at length. You know, Ed and I would be trying to walk out the door because we were tired and hungry. And she would stop right in the middle of the aisle, like this auditorium. And she'd be talking to folks and I used to watch her and she was listening to every word that the person said. And then later on, she would say to me, 
well, they, they were very troubled. I had to try to help them. They were very, very troubled. And, you know, they came here to talk to me tonight, especially. She would not blow anybody off. She was, when she said to you, how are you today, dear? She meant it. She didn't, she wanted to hear the answer. When a lot of people just say it as, as a common thing, how are you doing today? And they don't even listen to your answer. She wanted to really know. That's how she was as a personality. And sometimes she would, we would meet her for lunch, uh, Judy and I would meet her for lunch, like on a Saturday, say at 1230 in the afternoon. And she'd say, oh, I'm a little tired today. And I'd say, what's the matter, Lorraine? Oh, last night I got a phone call and I had to talk to somebody. And I said, oh, yeah, was it late? She was, oh, they called me at three o'clock in the morning. And I said, you actually spoke to those people? She said, yeah, I was on the phone for about an hour and a half with them. Now. How many people do you know would take a phone call at three o'clock in the morning while they're sleeping and stay on the phone for an hour and a half? That was Lorraine. She wanted to help everyone. Ed, uh, he was similar to that, but he was a little more rough gruff. He was more like a John Wayne type of a guy, but he had a heart of gold. Uh, but Ed lived and breathed the supernatural 24 seven. I used to go to his house, like just to visit, have a cup of coffee. And I'd walk in and Lorraine would be cleaning up the kitchen. And I'd say, where's Ed? Oh, he's down in his office down there in the museum. He's always down there. I walk downstairs. He's got a book open on the supernatural, reading something on the paranormal. More times than I could count, I would see Ed reading a book on the paranormal. And he was so interested in it, so like dedicated to the work that they used to go sometimes on one or two uh, investigations a day. Sometimes I'd call up and they'd say, well, we're just leaving the house. We have to go to such and such a city and, and meet a couple that's haunted. When they say they did 10,000 cases, they did 10,000 cases. They were almost every day they were somewhere, but they were animal lovers. Uh, besides that, they loved the animals. <clears throat> In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. Ed had a pet fox. Now, I don't know if you have foxes in yeah. Ireland or not. Yeah. But he had, a pet, he had a pet fox. It was a red fox. And it was wild, but he caught it. He must have been injured. And he caught it in a cage and he kept it as a pet. And he called him Red. His name was Red. One day, uh, he says to Lorraine, I'm going to go to the store, the hardware store. I'll be back. I'll be back in about an hour. Now, this is before there were mobile phones. You know, there was just a wall phone. And he wouldn't have any phone on him. So he leaves. About an hour and a half goes by, and Lorraine's getting a little worried because he usually comes back on time. Two hours later, the phone rings, and she answers the phone. It's Ed, and he's frantic. He's at the hardware store, and he's yelling, Lorraine, you have to get down here right away. Right away, Lorraine. And she's like, she thought he was sick. What's the matter, Ed? He says, that darn fox. Uh, he's like, I got him in the car. He won't let me back in the car. He's snapping at me. <laughs> and, and he was trying to get into the, pass the driver's side of the car, and the fox would be growling and snapping at him. And Lorraine had to go down to the hardware store with her own car and pull up and go onto the passenger side of the car and talk to the fox. Hi, Red, how are you? Trying to calm him down while Ed jumped into the driver's seat. But they loved animals. And Lorraine had chickens and she would keep them in the house. She had a rooster and three hens that she kept in the house in the wintertime because she thought it was too cold outside for them. So they had hearts of gold and they never charged for a case that they wanted. When they went on an investigation somewhere, sometimes they used to tell me later, they said, you know, 
they didn't, those people didn't even offer us a cup of coffee. We were there for two days and but they never asked for money. That, that was Ed. I would say, look, if you ask for money on an investigation, you lose all credibility. People start to think you're just in it for the money. So I never charge for an investigation. That's the kind of people they were. Very, very sincere. You mentioned Ed and, his, and the museum there. Can you talk, talk to me about the origins of setting up, well, the Warrens setting up the occult museum? Talk, me, talk, talk us through that. And obviously, and Dan, you can come, you, Dan, you can come in and obviously, yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're involved as well, you can pipe in as well. Right. So um, Ed and Lorraine used to go on cases, like I said, all the time when they were young. I'm talking about 20 years old, 21, 22. Ed used to sell paintings because he went to art school for two years uh, after he got out of the United States Navy in World War II. He went to art school in New Haven, Connecticut. And one day he came home and he said to Lorraine, I quit art school. And she said, why'd you do that, Ed? Why? He said, I could, he was cocky. Ed was a little cocky. He said, I could paint better than those instructors. I'm going to make us a lot of money, Lorraine. And sh she laughed. He said, I am. And he used to take these little pieces of barn wood and paint uh, New England scenes and haunted house scenes on this barn wood. And then they would drive up to these tourist locations in New Hampshire and Vermont and Maine. And they would sit on the side of the road and Ed would put up an easel and he would sell his paintings. But what he also did in the early years, he would read about a haunted location, usually in a, a magazine called Fate Magazine, F-A-T-E, Fate, little magazine. And had all these little unusual stories and about hauntings and about supernatural occurrences. And Ed used to read those faithfully and he used to look for these haunted houses in these articles. He'd say to Lorraine, we're gonna drive up and." and check out those haunted houses in these different cities. But what he would do, he would take a sketch pad with him and he would sketch out the house when he got to the location. It'd take him about 30 minutes to do it with a pencil and a sketch pad. And then he'd hand it to Lorraine and say, Lorraine, take this sketch, go up to the house and tell the, whoever answers the door that your husband did a nice sketch of your house and wants you to have it. So maybe that'll get us into the house and I can talk about their haunting. And nine out of 10 times, Ed would be invited in to talk about the haunting. So he, they became more and more involved in haunted investigations. And through those investigations, Ed would start to gather these items that people said, you know, I went to a, uh, I went to a tag sale, or I guess you guys call it a bonnet sale, a boot sale, a boot sale. Because I went to a boot sale and, uh, and the person would say, after I got this object, like this doll, or whatever it may be, I started to have these strange things happen in my house. So Ed would do an investigation of the home, and the people would say, well, I don't want this object anymore. You want it, Ed? And they would say, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it off your hands. And they would put it into this building that was actually, at first, an art studio. He had this little building that he used to teach art to people. And... So he used to store it upstairs in the attic part of this building. And he would gather, you know, case files on people. He'd write up a little story about what happened at that house. And one day he looks at Lorraine, he says, Lorraine, we have to do something. And she says, what do you mean we have to do something? He said, we got all these articles, all these photographs of these haunted locations, all these artifacts. He says, we have to come up with some society or something, a club or something. He goes, why don't we create a society? And they did, New England Society for Psychic Research. 
Then when Ed started to gather more and more objects from people, in other words, he would visit places where witchcraft rituals were, were occurring in forested areas, and he'd find these ritual objects, or people would be arrested, and the police would say, well, look, do you want this, this object? This is from this satanic ritual that we made this arrest. And Ed would take them. And finally, Ed said to Lorraine, I have to, I have to convert this art studio into a museum. He goes, I got too much stuff. He goes, and you know, there's a lot of interested people out there that want to know about these things. And that's how the museum actually started, was back in the early 50s when he was collecting these objects. And he also said to me one time, he said, I keep these objects as evidence. And I go, well, what do you mean, evidence, Ed? He says, well, you know, if I tell someone that I have a haunted doll that would put scratches on people, because of an evil entity within the doll. Now people are gonna ask me, well, where's the doll? And if, you know, I have a satanic idol that I got in the woods from a, a high priest in a satanic cult that he used to worship this idol. And people say, well, where's that idol now? And I tell them, well, I don't have it anymore. He says, how much credibility do I have as, a, as an investigator when I don't have any evidence to show about what I'm talking about? I talk about a, a haunted object, but I don't have any of them. And so I'm gonna keep these for people we're very interested in the occult and for investigators who want to learn more about the occult. He used to tell me, you know, a picture is worth more than a thousand words. If you have the object to show that person, they get a clearer idea of what you're talking about. And that's how it all started. And how did you get involved, Dan, with the whole society and investigation? Well, I, got, I got involved many years ago when um, it was uh, Tony and Lorraine will be out doing their lectures. I didn't have the privilege of meeting Ed um, so I went to the lectures, you know, Tony and Lorraine were doing them and I was outside waiting, you know, for them to come in and uh, I see that they were taking some books out of the trunk of their car. So, uh, I go up to them and say, yeah, do you need any help bringing these books in? And, uh, yeah, Tony said, yeah, here, grab this box. You know, Lorraine said, yeah, you know, help us. So, uh, you know, that's how I got involved. I mean, just by asking a question, you know, can I help you bring these books into the auditorium? And, um, you know, they welcomed me into their society. Um, they kind of heard about me because I've been doing paranormal investigations on my own. So Tony knew a little bit about me. But um, the more they got to know me, the more I got to know them. You know, we built a friendship. We built a bond. And um, they took me in. And I've been helping them with their investigations. Um, you know, Lorraine and I had a very special bond. Um, you know, we were really good friends. And uh, she taught me a lot. Um, she taught me in ways of how to investigate with compassion, you know. And um, not every house is a demonic, you know, haunting. You know, there's, there's sometimes there's family issues. There's ways to uh, talk to the clients and get the truth out from them to figure out where the real problems are. And uh, that's how Lorraine and, and Ed approached their cases. And I took that to heart, and we continued doing the same work as they, you know, as they did. What was the sort of biggest? What was what? What did you learn the most from Lorraine, Tony, from in, in with regards to investigating cases? What was the what was the what's the big the big one that you always sort of refer to or you always remember? What what does she teach you the most? She taught well, me. Well, go ahead, Dan. But the thing is. What, when I started off investigating, it was, all, it was about just capturing the evidence. You know, wow, look what I've captured, this and that. 
by working with the Warrens, it wasn't just the evidence, it was the family. It was the people that we were helping. Uh, what was the most important thing? Was it the evidence or was it, you know, the, the, the problems these, these families were having? And it was the family. And there were the number one focus to, um, you know, to get them the right help. Right. What about you, Tony? I know, she, I know she's your mother-in-law, mother-in-law, but, you know, you can, you can be objective as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know what the main thing was, and it was from Lorraine and from Ed both, though, it was, you have to find a solution to their problem. You have to help them to the end. You know, when you watch some of these shows, Martin, you watch some of these television programs, the investigators, unfortunately, on these programs, they only do half the job. You know, half of the job is investigating, gathering evidence, documenting evidence, getting to the core of the problem. That's half. That's half your job is learning what's going on, what it is that you're dealing with. That's, but that's only half. The other half, and this is what Ed and Lorraine used to uh, stress to me, and now and Dan and all the others do the same thing, is to find a resolution. No matter how hard it is to try with all you have to get a resolution to their, to their issue, to their problem. Not to go into a house and say, Oh, yeah, well, we've decided that you have a demonic entity here. You got a problem, and then leave. That's what a lot of these television shows do. They'll say, oh, yeah, there's something here. A lot of them won't even discern which what it is. They'll just say, yeah, there's something here because we caught it on, on tape or we caught it on a recording, and then they leave. They don't really find a resolution. The people still have a problem when the show is over. That's not what you want. Now, that's doing, that's, that's doing half the job. So we uh, do the full job or try to as much as we possibly can. And that is the, the, the uh, dedication that Ed and Lorraine had. They used to tell me, you, have, you don't go in a case not trying to solve it. And that, that's, what we, that's what actually I learned from Lorraine and from Ed, that you have to follow through. It has to be a total deep dive in, not just a cursory examination. Yeah, you just you touched on it before about the paranormal industry. What is the state of the ground at the moment? Obviously, we're in abnormal times right now. But in the last few years, um, I know I know our mutual friend Jimmy Petanito talks about like he's, he's mentioned to me before that like, now you find paranormal teams on every street corner. You know what what is the state of the ground? State on the ground with regards to the paranormal in industry. Is it is it getting better? Is it just getting filled with a lot of people who are just going for the motions? You know, what, what from your sort of objective view, what is what's going on at the moment with, with paranormal? Well, well, what I what I think is that a lot of these people that are in the paranormal networks, the paranormal realm, I really I, I believe that a lot of them are in it just for the fame, just for the notoriety, uh, just for the thrill. In other words, wow, look at me, you know, uh, I'm an investigator and, and uh, I want to be on top. I want to be number one. That is not the right, right way to approach things. To, to try to be number one in something just for your own ego, that's not the way to be. And I think that's the way a lot of these uh, organizations are. Now, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say every single person is like that. No, but I think that uh, there's a lot of copycats out there. A lot of people say, well, oh, if that person can do it on TV. So can I, I want to be famous too. And I'll create a website. You know, anyone can create a website. Anyone can say that they're 
a paranormal investigator. They can even say they're a demonologist. And it's funny, the, the general population, they believe what they read, they believe what they see. So if someone creates a website and says, I'm a demonologist, uh, I'm a paranormal investigator, there's people that'll call them up for help. And these, the, the investigators, the people that they're calling don't know what they're doing at all. They, they're doing the, the exact wrong things. But because they have a website and it looks professional, they think it's real. So I think the state is, it's, there's no standards. You don't have to go to a school. You don't need a certification like a doctor or an attorney or a police officer, uh, someone like our chemist. You don't, you don't need uh, special schooling. You could just say, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. I'm an investigator. I'm a paranormal researcher. I'm a demonologist and have no really, no training, no background, no on-the-job training. So I think it's one of those things where the public has to be very cautious, very uh, selective in, in who they go to for help. Because a lot of times, these paranormal groups make it worse. They make it worse by, their, uh, by, by causing a rumble in the house, you know what I mean? By, by causing a stir, and then they leave. Your experiences, Dan, working with, not so much working with teams, but witnessing teams on the ground. Um, a lot of it right now is um, you see a lot of stuff going on YouTube, a lot of YouTube influencers, and um, it depends on, you know, how many millions of followers they have, and it becomes a uh, shock value of what they're putting out there on their channels to get more followers. Um, you know, I think um, with our organization, you know, we have our foundation. We have that knowledge that was handed down to us how to conduct an investigation, what's the true meaning of this field, we have that. And I think, um, you know, it, our work is not that glorified. I think we have the history, but, you know, with all this stuff that's going on, the media, the, on YouTube, um, you know, a lot of people are looking for that shock value. You know, look what moved over there. How did that happen? You know, look at that, uh, you know, the apparition that appeared on my camera. You know, it's all about the evidence. You know, it's not showing how these families are really affected. And sometimes how these investigators are affected by conjuring up these entities. Um, you know, they, they don't know that, you know, they're dealing with something demonic and that it's going to come after them. It's going to come after them on the demonic's time. It could come to them two years later and it could destroy their life. Um, it's happened. I mean, you, we've seen it. We've seen people commit murder that were paranormal investigators. Um, you know, stuff that they dabbled in and, and conjure up in rituals, you know, just to get that shock value on a YouTube channel or on a TV show. It harms people, and they need to know how to deal with these entities, you know, and how to protect themselves. Difficult question to answer, probably, but individually, could you... Tell me your most memorable case to date. Well, we have so many of them, it's, uh, it's difficult, but we've had a, a couple were involved possessions of people. Remember the one in New Haven, Dan? Uh, we had yeah. one in New Haven with Roberto, a guy named Roberto, who uh, he started out as a very religious man. He was Hispanic in origin. He was very Catholic. He used to pray every day went to church all the time, was very respectful of everyone and everything, about 30 years old. 
And suddenly his mother started to see a change in this man where he would start to withdraw within himself. I think the first thing she noticed was he didn't want to leave his bedroom. He lived at home. He didn't want to leave the room. He always used to go outside and have a good time and go to church and everything. He stopped going to church. He stopped praying. He stopped everything. He would stay in his room underneath the bed covers for 24 hours a day. The only time he would come out would be to have a little something to eat or to use the bathroom. And his mother became very concerned how he used to act and his aversion towards anything religious. She would say to him, Roberto, don't you want to pray with me today? And he would just have a fit and he'd go back in his room. So we went out there, uh, our team went out there and we confronted this young man who we believe was not totally possessed, but he was highly influenced by this demonic, uh, whatever it was, entity. And we had to do many, many hours of deliverance prayers over him. And he became, I'm not going to say violent, but where he would thrash around and make these crazy noises. Uh, that, that kind of a thing happens to people. A lot of times it's, it's to test the faith of the person. The demonic goes to see how much this person will endure uh, and perhaps they will abandon God because of the torment that they're going through, figuring that God abandoned them, you know. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened to me was also not that far from you. It was in uh, a place called Whitby, England. And you might be familiar with Whitby because there's Whitby Abbey there in Whitby, England. Near, it's near Robin Hood's Bay. So your UK listeners will probably know uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, it's where Bram Stoker had the casket land in the book Dracula and Ed Warren, Lorraine Warren, my wife, Judy, and I went there about 1981 and I was brand new to the paranormal realm. I had just met Ed in 79 in Lorraine and 81, Ed says, we're going to England. We're going to go on a trip, you and Judy and Lorraine and I. And I was excited because I'd never been to the United Kingdom before. And when we went there, we stayed at a few bed and breakfast places. And this night we were in Robin Hood's Bay. And I was tired because I had jet lag. And we were sleeping. And it was about, I'd say about two in the morning. I heard a knock on my door. I thought it was the proprietor, you know. It wasn't the proprietor. It was Ed Warren. And he was saying, come on. He was laughing. Come on, we're going out. And I said, Ed, Ed, I'm, we're dead tired. We can't go anywhere. Come on, we're going out. We're going to Whitby. I said, are you kidding me? He goes, no, I'm not kidding. Let's go. We're going to do an investigation and we're going to have fun. So I said, all right. So it was Ed, Lorraine, Judy, and me went to Whitby, England. It was in May of, I believe, 1981. And it was off the North Sea. If you're familiar with Whitby, it's off the North Sea. The wind was whipping. You can see the outline of the ruins of the Abbey. It was very spooky looking and cold. And... Ed says to me, well, why don't you set up your camera on a tripod, your 35 millimeter camera. Why don't you set that up and I'm going to use my cassette deck. I'm going to get my cassette player already. And that's all we had back then was film. And we had a, a cassette. And he said, I'll be over here. I'm going to set my cassette up and try to get some recordings. You, you get that camera going. So I started to set up my camera. This is, a, this is actually the first problem I ever had with the paranormal. I was setting up the camera. I could sense something behind me. And 
I knew there was something behind me. So I turned around and what was there was this black, darker than the night, pulsating whirlwind mass, like a cyclone of wind spinning around. And my energy was immediately drained from my body where I couldn't hardly stand up. And you could sense evil around you. And, you know, you can't describe evil unless you experience it. I fell down to my knees and I was in a terrible, terrible state. I could hardly move. I was weak. And I remember I was able to yell out help a couple times. And, you know, we were the only ones there. So in the nighttime, you could hear a voice pretty good. Ed heard me and he came running. And what he did, I later found out what he was really doing. He had holy water that he always kept in his, in his pocket. He wore like a brown safari jacket. He always had a bottle of holy water stuck in one of the pockets. And he was sprinkling this water as he was running towards me. And he was yelling out loud because I heard it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave and go back to where you came from. In the name of Jesus Christ, over and over, he kept saying, I command you to leave. In the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ. And when he got within about, say, I'd say about 10 feet of this thing, it just vanished. It went and it was gone. But I was still on the ground. I was so weakened by what happened that Ed had to lift me up by my two arms, get me to my feet. And then I said, Ed, what the hell was that? He said, kid, that was your first experience with something demonic. He said, let's go back to the car. He goes, we're going we're gonna to go back. We're going to go back to the hotel because he knew I was spent. That was my first and probably my worst encounter with something actually demonic. So it was a, a pretty big uh, introduction, I would say, to, uh, to the paranormal. It was bad. Uh, I think uh, memorable cases that I've worked on um, that actually affected me are the exorcisms that were performed. Um, you know, as a child, when I was growing up, I grew up in a house. I won't say that it was um, a, a ghostly haunting. It was more demonic. You know, my aunt dabbled in Santeria, you know, which their altars were underneath my, my bedroom. And I will feel the ill effects of it you know, being dragged out of bed, thrown into a wall. Um, found out that my brother had gotten possessed also at the age of 12 years old. And a priest had to come over to the house and perform an exorcism. Um, that was withheld from me, from my family. I found that out on my mother's deathbed, what happened. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened in my past, I think it, it has a lot to do with what I'm doing today. Um, you know, things happened. It's just where things happened. Um, I remember being 12 years old, being at the church. It was um, Bible study. And the pastor's son was given the class. A man walked in with a dog. It was a pit bull. And the pit bull started talking. It was like the dog was talking for the man. And the guy reached out to the pastor's son to try to grab the Bible from the pastor's son. And his hand got stuck on the Bible, and it was burning. And when he lifted his hand off the Bible, it left a burnt mark on the Bible. You know, it was burning. Um, it's just stuff like that happened to me as I was growing up. Um, and, and I think that's how I got involved into the paranormal, um, trying to find out all these questions that I had, you know, what happened to me when I was a child. Um, so when I say the most 
the case that affected me the most will be the exorcisms because at that time I was facing the devil. I was facing these demons. Um, seeing a person go under possession with their eyes rolled back to, to the back of their heads and all you see is the whites of their eyes and their body trembling and hearing their voice change. Um, it's real. And um, when you become a part of this and you, you work with the church and you assist in these exorcisms, you, you're just not sitting there a part, you know, being a part of the exorcism. You're involved in the exorcism. You're there praying the rosaries. Um, the, the priest is doing his, you know, ritual, you know, to get rid of this demon. And it goes on for hours. And if the first time around of the exorcism does not work and the person does not snap out of it, you have to go through the whole exorcism ritual again until this person snaps out of it. And then at the end, you will have to kiss a holy relic. You will have to kiss the cross. You will have to accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. And if you don't do that, the demonic stays inside of you. And I've seen it. Um, so when I say it takes multiple exorcisms to get rid of a demon or to get rid of the devil, it's true. It takes multiple exorcisms. Um, and the preparation to these exorcisms are so surreal. You have to fast for three days. You have to go to confession. You have to go to mass. And then you're prepared to be a part of this exorcism. And, um, you know, it takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your life. It affects you. It affects your, it affects your family in, in some certain way. Um, if you open your eyes, you see how it affects your life. And I believe, Marty, you have experienced that yourself. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's something Father Martin always said about, uh, although I've never witnessed or been in a, in a room during an exorcism, but Father Martin always talked about it took a little bit of your life force each time. You know, it took a little bit away from you each time, every time you attended the, the right. Uh, my, my intentions with the, the second documentary is, is to showcase, and I'm not doing it for entertainment purposes, I'm purely doing it for educational purposes, in the sense I do want to film a right of exorcism. And, you know, and the, the misconceptions are everything's finished and done in, in one day, in one right, when I actually what you've just addressed there, Dan, is it's not. It's, it, it's it, multiple exorcisms and Father Martin in the past talked about exorcisms that went on for two years at least. So what right. I want to, what I want to do with the second film, although, although I, I, I personally have been affected uh, at my, in my own home, my loved ones have been affected. I still feel like I didn't get the chance to address a lot of things in the first film, which I still can't really and I need to get it off my chest and get it onto into the second installment, which hopefully will be finished next year. So although right. I, although I do, I'm respectful of, of what I'm walking into again, I still feel like from my own journey, I need to finish this with the second film. Although right. when you watch it, it will be a standalone film, but it will be in a sense, potentially could be a second chapter as well to the first film. But for me, it's a way of closing the chapter and, and I am willing to, to not sort of, sort of be the first filmmaker to 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 document an exorcism because I'm I, I'm not I'm just what I want to do is is objectively um, introduce a, a contemporary case to an audience to show how how respectful and professional the investigators are that are involved and to and to 
basically showcase and to to show a case going through a right of exorcism over over how many days it takes to to and, and that's the thing and also getting um a priest to and the church to allow it to be filmed yeah it's, 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 yeah. it's, a, it's a challenge it's taken me two and a half years to to i'm i'm taking me two and a half years to find the right case and to write and find the right priest who is willing to right to do this and, and and obviously finding the right priest with the right intentions as well is important and i've been warned just like i was with the first film you know you, you won't be allowed to make this film no 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 and then we, we six years later we made the film it's, i'm having the same obstacles presented to me in this second installment no no you won't be able to to document a, a, a right of exorcism because it's too dangerous and the, the church won't allow it and i'm just i just think it's a massive cop-out for a filmmaker to you know in, in recent documentaries that i've seen to to bring an audience all to that point where they're no longer allowed to go into the chapel or they are no longer allowed to to see what's happening inside the chapel i just think that's a massive cop-out and i am respectful of the faith and i am respectful of, of what we are potentially you know facing in that room i just feel like the need is now to to document this and to show this and to educate people and not to yeah. preach not to preach but to, to objectively present the right of exorcism in a contemporary world and that's that's all i want to do and I, yeah I, I said before i am respectful i will protect myself and i've been fasting for uh, myself, I've been, to be fair, I've been fasting for the last nine months, although it's only it's an intermittent fasting, but I, I am getting myself prepared for, you know, this second installment and I am extremely respectful and, and I am going in, um, clear head, clear, clear minded and, 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 and people can argue that, oh, you're just doing it for entertainment purposes or to, to set, to make money and stuff. But as, as filmmakers who listen to this podcast will, will, will vouch you know we filmmakers don't tend to make that much money in the films it's, it's the corporate the exec corporate sharks who 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 you know commissioners who who make the who make the money in, at the end of the day it's not us, it's not as ground sold or foot soldiers on the ground who are making the films you know it, and that's not the point filmmakers tend not to do this for the money anyway they tend to do this to to, to create create stories which which spark discussion and to get people questioning a lot of things in right the and what, what, what I've experienced, and I don't know if I could put um, two and two together and why the church does not want it to be filmed. Here's an example. When um, Tony and myself were um, having a lecture and uh, we showed the video of Roberto and uh, during the deliverance prayer, and it was around 9 p.m. at night when um, we were showing this video, we have gotten a call the following day from Roberto's um, girlfriend. And um, she told us that Roberto started acting up the same night we had the lecture. They didn't know that we showed the video. And our investigator, Chris, asked her, well, around what time was it that he started acting up? Okay. And it was at 9 p.m. at night. And... Um, and there was another thing that I questioned as myself again, is when um, the exorcism of Maurice. Now, Ed and Lorraine were out on a lecture that night. And I'm not sure if Ed or Lorraine had showed the exorcism video for the first time of Maurice that night. But when Ed got home, Ed went to his um, answer machine and he saw that there was a message left 
on the answer machine. It was Maurice that was calling Ed and saying, Ed is starting to act up again. You know, I need your help. I need you to come down here. When, when Ed had called the house over at uh, Maurice's house, the Warren Police Department had picked up the phone and um, had said, um, you know, Maurice had shot his wife and also killed himself. So I don't know if that's the reason the church is the church know more about these exorcisms and, you know, if they're videotaped and if they're shown, if this is possibly that what could happen is that you're manifesting this demon to attack these people again, or, you know, is there something more that we don't understand about it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that definitely for me to go into second installments, you know, we've, we've already, we've already shot for the first half of the film. I will obviously come over and seek, seek, come over and talk to you guys and get as much advice as possible. And, and, and you know, and I'm not going to, you know, I've spent, I've already spent two and a half years on the second film. So it's, it's right. not like I've rushed into this and I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And, you know, we're, we're extremely respectful to the, to the case uh, that we're going to be investigating. No, and, and, I, and I truly understand that. I think it's that we have to put that knowledge. Yeah. We have to put that knowledge to it um, and the understanding of it. Um, and I think those are still questions that need to be answered. Um, because, you know, we're talking about thousands, even maybe even millions of years of, you know, of knowledge that the, the demonic and that the Lord Jesus Christ has. I mean, you know, that's a lot of knowledge. There's a lot that we don't know yet. Yeah. There's, you know, the biblical text, you know, how many more books of the Bible are there that we haven't even seen yet? Yeah. The understanding of the Bible, you know, so I'm not questioning my religion. I believe in everything the Bible says, but I believe that there's more to it as well. Yeah. That there's some knowledge out there that's withheld from us because we're not prepared to understand it or even to grasp it yet. Yeah. And uh, there's, like I said, there's, it goes way deeper and a lot of things that are happening around this world today has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, from both being military men, you know, we, we had a very clear, you know, very clear sense of purpose in the military. So I think for me personally, I found, you know, filmmaking was, was, is now my in a sense new sense of purpose and, and and i know what my sense of purpose is now is to tell stories and to continue to tell stories um when people are telling you you can't tell stories so that's right i i'm i'm i'm, I'm not well i could you could say i'm i'm a little bit stubborn in that sense but i i truly believe that you know i do need to make this finish this film and make this second installment Again, again, just to recap, not I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it to exploit the the person that's the subject we're going to look at. But I'm purely doing it to to object like, for the first time ever. You know, show 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 a right, show show the person going through a mm -hmm. right exorcism. I'm just sick and tired of having that chapel door slammed in my face as an audience member. So I think yeah. you know, a lot of a lot of very very um, experienced and successful filmmakers haven't been able to cross that line and 
again, it's not something I'm rushing into. It's, it's I, I will talk to you know like-minded people and educated people and the church, and I, we will be going into this as, right. as professional and respectful as possible. But no, obviously, I'd love you guys to be involved, and I'd love, I'd love to come over again and and, and go to the museum again because that 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 visit was incredible, and yeah, I'm still talking, yeah. to, so still talking to people about it to this day. But it'd be great to see you guys again. And uh, can you talk to the audience, Tony, about where people can find you guys and what your plans are for the future? Is it more TV work or what, what are you guys? Well, yeah, they can find us on the, on the website, uh, www.warrens.net. That's plural, warrens.net. Also, I have a YouTube channel, the official Ed and Lorraine Warren YouTube channel. And that's, that's pretty good, too, because it has a lot of interviews with Ed and Lorraine on there. And a lot of their case files are also on there. So the official Ed and Lorraine Warren channel is good too. But coming up in 2021, we're hoping, uh, we don't hope we are going to forge ahead. And there's a lot of good things that are going to happen uh, with our society, with Dan, with me, and with our team. Uh, not only in helping people, but in getting the word out to the general population also. Can't really talk too much about what we're going to be doing, but big things, as Dan will uh, confirm, big things are going to happen next year, 21. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, it can't get any worse, can it? So. No. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> maybe aliens landing next year or something. Go. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. might be. That might be a good thing. And, and, and you know what? People will be like, yeah, whatever. You know, aliens. That's cool. You know, people yeah. are still, you know, they're being desensitized to everything now. So. Yeah, it's a good moment yeah. to uh, to to release the case studies. Yeah, yeah so, but, but but yeah, but I really appreciate your time, lads, and uh, um, hopefully I'll get over. Hopefully, probably the way I'm going to make this second film is probably going to have to parachute in somewhere and and, and come <laughs> come across the border and sneak right. in. But I'm, I'm, right. I'm only joking. But yeah, I'll be can't wait, can't wait to get back over to Connecticut and uh, got a fondness for the place. I just I just. Got a got a good vibe of the place and good people there and yeah I, I, I'd love to meet you guys again and yeah thanks again for coming on board and, and excellent the podcast. All right, wish you the best. Yeah, good stay, luck. yeah, good please luck, stay, stay in touch, guys. Bye bye. You got it. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening and remember you can still watch our Hostage to the Devil documentary on Netflix until April 2021. We have a Facebook page too, so please give us a like and buy us a coffee over at BuyMeACoffee.com to help us keep this podcast going. And it would only be right to finish with the main man himself. Exorcism itself and possession is uh, is not a joyous thing. It's not a happy thing. Uh, possession is a dirty, uh, insalubrious, unhealthy, mucky, and uh, unpleasant situation when you come across it. But it's a necessary evil in the sense that we have to deal with it once we meet people who are possessed.